Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, here's something that may shock you. As far as scientists can tell, there is no good evolutionary or biological reason for humans to have music. As a species, we could get along just fine without it. Life would be much duller, but biologically, we would be okay. Yet there's something about our brains. We're hardwired to both crave and create music. And it's not just homo sapiens. Archaeologists found a flute made of bone in what's now Slovenia in Central Europe. This flute was made of the femur of a bear. It had four holes in it, which corresponded to the notes Do, Re, Mi, and Fa, the first four notes of the modern diatonic scale. This flute was not created by Homo sapiens, but by a Neanderthal, one of those grunty guys with the slope foreheads. And this flute could be 82,000 years old. Then there are other scientists who believe that language, in fact the ability to speak, period, evolved from early humans trying to imitate things like bird songs. Maybe that's where the hardwiring comes in. Bottom line is that music is literally part of your DNA, which brings up some interesting issues. Welcome to another one of those episodes that I call... Medical Mysteries of Music. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Again, I'm Alan Cross, and we're going to spend a lot of time on this show talking about your brain and your body, specifically how your brain and body is intertwined with music. In fact, let's start with a little neuroscience. I learned this from Daniel Levitin, a record producer turned neuroscientist who explores the relationship between music and the brain. In fact, he's got a great book called This Is Your Brain on Music. Highly recommended. I've mentioned this before, but it's, uh, it's so cool that it's worth doing again. There are three areas of the brain, the nucleus accumbens, the amygdala, and the cerebellum. These three areas are responsible for secreting a hormone called dopamine. Now, dopamine is the natural feel-good hormone. Whenever the body gets a shot of dopamine, it goes, wow, I like this, give me more, and you obey. Consciously or unconsciously, you embark on a constant search to find those things that make your brain secrete dopamine in response. This explains why people like sex. 
sex, especially orgasm, results in dopamine. It's why people like drugs, heroin, ecstasy, cocaine, they all stimulate dopamine production. And you know when you hear a song that sends chills down your spine and makes the hair on your arm stand up? That's dopamine. It floods your system when you hear this song and it makes you feel good. So you associate that song with feeling good. It's all chemical. Bottom line, evolution and biology have seen to it that our brains are literally wired for, um, well, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Sex and drugs and rock and roll Is all my brain and body need Sex and drugs and rock and roll It's very good indeed Keep your silly ways a classic song from Ian Jury and the Blockheads from 1977 called Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll. Ian and the Blockheads were British, and they're recorded for an indie label called Stiff. And that song is credited with introducing that phrase, sex and drugs and rock and roll, into the English language in a worldwide way. It became known as a meme. That's spelled M-E-M-E. A meme is a piece of culture genetics like the gene in a cell that reproduces itself and transmits the information it contains to other cells, a meme involves a word, a catchphrase, a behavior, a concept, a thought, a theory, or a habit that spreads throughout popular culture. It moves person by person until almost everyone has made it part of their everyday language. People like the thing, whatever it is, mimic it and pass it along. It's a type of cultural revolution, almost like a virus, I guess. New slang words are memes. Fashion is all about memes. LOL cats. That's a meme. And sex and drugs and rock and roll is a meme. Wow, we're, we're kind of covering it all here, aren't we? Neuroscience, archaeology, anthropology, sociology, language. And here's a quick bit of medicine. Ian Jury contracted polio when he was about seven years old, and he lived with the effects for the rest of his life. He was diagnosed with colorectal cancer, which spread to his liver, and he died on March the 27th of 2000. Okay, let's get back to some medical mysteries. I get bad headaches, big migraines. You know, the auras, the flashing lights, the hallucinations. I get the, the, the works. If you suffer from migraines, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You just want to lie in a cool, dark, quiet room and die. But believe it or not, researchers in India say that listening to music can help not only headaches, but other forms of pain, even pain associated with cancer. This all falls under the broader issue of music therapy. Scientists aren't quite sure why, but using music has proven to be very, very effective in treating everything from pain to depression, from anxiety to autism, and from memory loss to high blood pressure. And according to recent research out of Finland, music can even help stroke patients recover more quickly by up to 60%. Their memories improved and their moods were lifted. Music therapy might not be able to cure, say, uh, a learning disability, but short-term, it seems to at least help. Faster improvements, fewer drugs. So, what kind of music works best? Well, that's where it gets gray. It all depends on the patient. Some people respond best to soft, soothing music. Other people improve with music that has regular rhythms and beats. Whatever the case, though, results are so promising that institutions around the world are studying the healing powers of music. And with that in mind, here's Queens of the Stone Age. It's a song called, I Think I Lost My Headache. Tell you so good. 
Stone Age with I Think I Lost My Headache. I think Josh is actually talking about a psycho girlfriend, but I think the song will serve our purposes just fine. Here's a little bit more on music therapy. If you're a musician, you might want to consider a career as a music thanatologist. Thanatologist comes from the Greek word for death. Some palliative care doctors use music thanatologists in the final hours of a patient's life. When he or she only has a day or so left, the thanatologist comes in and plays or sings soft music. They monitor the patient's vital signs and level of consciousness, and they change the music accordingly to help alleviate the physical, emotional, and spiritual pain. The music can trigger happy memories or trigger all sorts of emotional releases, which, like we talked about with dopamine, can make the patient feel good naturally. I know it sounds all new agey and musical thanatology has its skeptics, but those who have seen it used on patients and loved ones say that it really, really works. Doctors would say that it's clinically valid. Allison Chains. More medical mysteries of music coming up, and the thing we're going to discuss next will be of great interest to anyone who may be expecting. Hold on. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back. I'm Alan Cross, and this is another series of occasional episodes called Medical Mysteries of Music. We know that music affects us on deep emotional and physical levels, and we're looking at some of the reasons for that. This next bit is for people who may be expecting... I found this in the letters to the editor section of Modern Drummer magazine. Dear Sir, I'm a rock drummer, and I'm about 14 weeks pregnant with my first baby. Given how loud my kit is, and considering the cranked-up guitar amps I play next to, can the volume levels affect the hearing development of my baby? Well, that's a good question. You sometimes see pregnant women at rock concerts. Could high volume levels affect the fetus? Let me quote from Asif Khan, who is both an internist and a drummer who's living in Hawaii. I quote, A baby's entire ear structure, the outer, middle, and inner ear, is completely developed by 24 weeks in a normal pregnancy. In controlled, relatively quiet surroundings, the fluid-filled amniotic sac in the mother's body do a great job of muffling sounds and preventing the baby's ears from amplifying sounds. But for rock drummers, as well as workers surrounded by jackhammers, chainsaws, lawnmowers, and airplanes, normal daily environments are filled with hours of potentially damaging volume levels. To be safe until the baby is delivered, hold off on indoor concerts, loud band practices, loud recording sessions near drums or amps, and loud stereos in enclosed cars. Hey, who knew? But this doesn't mean you have to do without some of your favorite music. Um, check this out. Mm-hmm. 
if you're wondering what that's all about, it's a lullaby rendition of Closer by Nine Inch Nails. Yes, a, a lullaby of a Nine Inch Nails song. This is from a collection called Rockabye Baby, a series of CDs that take cool rock songs from cool bands and reduce them to an intensity that, um, well, that Baby can appreciate. I have a half dozen of these CDs in my collection. There's Coldplay, The Cure, Metallica, Radiohead. They're all babyfied. I like the Tool one, although sadly it does not include a lullaby rendition of Prison Sex or Hooker with a Penis. It's kind of strange, don't you think? I mean, if you're going to do it. Now, since we're on the topic of baby in music, we might as well mention the so-called Mozart effect. This is a theory that says exposing the fetus and the baby to classical music can enhance the kid's intellect in the womb. Now, a number of studies at a variety of universities seem to confirm this. Better math, better spatial perception, eight or nine IQ points higher. Well, you can imagine how certain people leapt on this. Listening to Mozart makes you smarter. The implication is that it has to be classical music that makes you smarter. A little elitist, don't you think? It got to the point where the state of Georgia began setting aside $100,000 in the annual budget to provide every child born in the state of Georgia with a CD or tape of classical music. Since then, though, a number of studies have called the whole Mozart effect into question. My favorite is a research project from 1999 that says babies get the same benefit from listening to Mozart as they do from listening to mom or dad read them part of a Stephen King novel. Alright, so maybe the Mozart effect doesn't have a big effect on baby, but one thing that does have an effect on children is music lessons. A variety of research indicates that if you take music lessons, you have a better chance of earning a higher income at whatever job you end up getting. It seems that the skills and disciplines learned while learning music can be applied to other aspects of life, including career building. Can music lessons set you on the path to success? Well, uh... See, I took accordion lessons as a kid. You can, you know, draw your own conclusions from that. All right. Everyone knows that music can be used to pump you up or motivate you to do something physical. And just about everyone has their favorite workout music or songs to listen to before the big game. Hell, the ancient Greeks discovered that you can use music to get you psyched up for war. There's something called Dorian Mode, which is named after the Dorian Greeks who came up with a special marching music. And there is a scientific basis for this. Many, many studies have proven that listening to music before or during an exercise can improve results. It's a motivator. You can exercise longer and more vigorously if there's good music. And it's a distraction. You forget how tired and sore you are. But here's the debate. Are some songs, some music more effective than others? I could help answer that. People who study the relationship between exercise, music, and performance will tell you that there's a science to choosing the right songs for your workout. 
There's something called the Brunel Music Rating Inventory. It's a questionnaire that was developed over 20 years of research designed to rate the motivational qualities of music when applied to sports and exercise. As you might guess, one of the most important elements to consider is tempo. It's important to match the tempo of the song with the tempo and intensity of your workout. This means people will look for songs with between 120 and 160 beats per minute. If you're out for a brisk stroll, you want something around 120. If you're a runner, crank something at 160. These rates also roughly match your heart rate during the workout. And here's a key thing. The tempo needs to be nice and regular. Songs that feature different intensities and changes in time signatures will just mess up your rhythm and mess up your workout. But what about workouts that don't involve running or aerobics or any kind of movement? What if you're um, a bodybuilder? Well, studies say that heavy metal is a big favorite because loud, aggressive music keeps you pumped up between, uh, well, pumps. Anyone who's ever been to a gym knows this. This is another episode of an occasional series called Medical Mysteries of Music. It's when we take a look at the strange and wonderful relationships our minds and bodies have with music. And here is one of the weirdest and one of the most incomprehensible, for most of us anyway. It's a condition known as synesthesia. This is a quirk of neurology, of your brain wiring, where the senses overlap. Connections between various cognitive pathways lead to interesting perceptions of reality. There are a variety of types of synesthesia, including a type that leads to some people being able to see music. Notes or certain timbers will appear to have colors to these folks. A middle C might appear red. A piano might sound green. Certain songs may have a golden halo about them. It all depends on the individual, but studies have proven that a person's synesthesia is very consistent. In other words, a middle C will always appear red or blue or green or whatever to that person. Those who have musical synesthesia are usually born with it and have always experienced it. They find it rather difficult to express what they see as they hear because they can't comprehend any other way of existence. Their audio realities have always been, well, colorful. Meanwhile, those of us who don't have synesthesia find the whole thing a little hard to conceptualize. Naturally, people have been most curious and fascinated by the subject, and there have been songs written about it. In fact, the first time I ever heard about the whole phenomenon of synesthesia was back in 1989 when an artist named Peter Himmelman released an album entitled, you guessed it, Synesthesia. I wonder what this song looks like. Synesthesia, everything's turning around. Synesthesia I hear the color and I see the sound I have one more medical mystery of music for you, and this is something that I've been ranting about to anyone who will listen. And here I go. MP3s hurt the musical experience. This brings us full circle to the discussion of dopamine that we had at the beginning of the show. Let me explain. MP3s are useful because they take up little storage space. You can cram a lot of them onto a hard drive or a flash drive or whatever. And the reason they're so small is because they're compressed versions of the real thing. The digital file on a compact disc is a WAV file. It's pretty big. 
dozens or hundreds of megabytes. An MP3 file is created with a mathematical algorithm using something called an encoder. It can reduce the size of that WAV file on a CD by a factor of 10. So, a 50 megabyte WAV file can be taken down to just 5 megabytes. And this is done by stripping out all the music that is invisible to the ear. If you can't hear it, then why do you need it? Get rid of it, and you can shrink that WAV file down to something much more manageable. And study after study after study will tell you that this works and that people can't tell the difference between a WAV file and its MP3 equivalent. However, there are those who believe that the ear and the brain are smarter than we give them credit for. The ear and the brain seem to interpret MP3 files differently than uncompressed sounds, and that we might not feel this compressed music the same way we do uncompressed music. Here are two theories. Number one, when we hear an MP3, different neurons are fired than when we hear an uncompressed digital file or an analog, that is non-digital, sound. Maybe fewer neurons are fired. If that's the case, the connections between the sound reception centers of our brain and the emotional centers may not be as strong. And I'm talking about those places, the amygdala, the nucleus accumbens, and the cerebellum that secrete dopamine that makes us feel good. So if the connections aren't as strong neurally, then we don't get the same flood of dopamine, less dopamine, and the result is that the music makes us feel less good than had we listened to the same music uncompressed or in an analog form. Okay, you with me so far? Theory number two. When the brain receives an MP3, it somehow knows that something is missing. Although the ear can't hear that 90% of the song that's not there, the brain tries to. It tries to fill in those blanks, replacing that 90% with something else. Maybe we access some kind of analog memory of that music deep in our brains, or maybe the brain just reaches out and finds nothing. Whatever the case, this process takes a few extra milliseconds before the music reaches our consciousness. Your brain, thus, has to work harder to perceive and process the music. This again disrupts any connections with the amygdala, the nucleus accumbens, and the cerebellum. Dopamine production is stunted. And again, the result is that the music makes us feel less good than had we listened to an uncompressed WAV file or an analog version. Some people, and I like to think that I am one of them, can actually tell the difference between a CD recording and an analog one. It's not so much that I can hear the difference as I can feel it. I know for a fact that I can tell the difference between an MP3 encoded at 128 kilobytes per second and one encoded at 256. I can sort of hear it, but it's more like I feel the difference. At least I'm pretty sure I can. That's what I tell myself anyway. But whatever the case, this is why I still hang on to my vinyl. Analog rules. It really does. These medical mysteries of music programs have turned out to be really, really popular. I'll continue to keep track of all the research and report back to you with another program in the future. Technical Productions by Rob Johnson and Adam Ketchkometti. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 